So, in this world, as we've got Life Explored starting again on Tuesday evening, and one of the things we I thought was a really helpful phrase from the Life Explored course was this concept that there is garbage and glory in this world, that human beings, there's a lot of garbage in us, but there's also amazing glory because we've been made in God's image on one hand, but on the other hand, we've rejected God and said, no, we're going to make our own way. And events like last night reveal the garbage and the glory, the curses, the blessings, and the Bible gives an honest description of the world as we actually find it. It gives us wonderful promises, though, that the glory will triumph over the garbage, that Life will triumph over death. The blessing will triumph over cursing. Mercy will triumph over judgment. Truth will triumph over lies. And for this, we hold our hope firm. And that Psalm 37 was so helpful for us. So this sense of blessing that God wants to bless us was very much cradled right back in the beginning of the Old Testament when God called Abraham to be his servant. And he says to Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation. He was prophesying the... Uh, Jewish people. He says, I will bless you. So he says to Abraham, God actually makes a promise to him, I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. Right? So I'm going to bless you and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And we today are actually sitting here in the fulfillment of this promise. We are the peoples of the earth who have been blessed because we have come to know Christ. But this promise we're told in the New Testament is still uh, real. This is not just a promise to Abraham. We are the heirs of this promise. And therefore we are still being blessed today so that we may be a blessing. And uh, nothing should let us be diverted from this calling of receiving and giving the blessing of God. And uh, the summit of the blessing that we receive is that God brings us and introduces us into his family. He brings us home as we have talked in our worship. And so in Romans chapter 8, in the, Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, uh, in verse 14, I just want to read a couple of passages in the middle of the chapter before we go to the end. It says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Today is Pentecost, we're celebrating the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of sonship, of, of adoption. And so, uh, and we, so we, receive, we read then in verse 15, The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father! The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, who is our elder brother. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We have to share in the garbage, unfortunately, in order to share in the glory. And then he goes on, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Right? Have hope, brothers and sisters. Have hope in the difficulties of life. Because he says, for the creation, this whole cosmos waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. 
This is how important a role you have and how God wants all human beings to know this, that he's, he's calling them all, he's beckoning them, come home, come and understand, be part of my family because you're the very crown of my creation and the whole of creation is actually groaning for the revelation of who we are. That's how important it is that you understand what it is to be a son and a daughter of God our Father. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That's God our Father who's sovereign. In hope, right, there was a purpose in this, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. This is the ambition of the whole of creation, that it would, it would be brought into that liberation that we already enjoy. I don't know about you. Do you think you have something you'd like to give away to the whole of creation? Yes. Yeah? That you are experiencing something so wonderful that it would be good if the whole of creation also enjoyed that. That is what scripture says. And I don't know about you, but that slightly mocks me because I think actually my experience could be a little fuller, actually. I would like the creation to enjoy something a little bit more than what I'm enjoying right now. So there is something for us to enter into, to experience something of that liberation of the sonship, which is our intention. Now, I, 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 I don't know about you, but when I think of fixing things, I might often turn to stuff like this, duct tape and WD-40. These are universally useful things. And so you might follow the flowchart that's on this diagram here, the engineer's flowchart. Does it move? Yes or no, right? No, it doesn't move. Should it move? Well, if the answer is no, it doesn't move and it shouldn't move, well, there's no problem. Right? <laughs> if, if it doesn't move but it should move, then WD-40 <laughs> is the answer. Okay. Now, if, if it does move and it is moving, no problem. If it does move but it shouldn't move, duct tape is the answer, okay? Now, uh, if any of you feel you need either of these afterwards, please come to the front and we can administer the duct tape or the WD-40. But, of course, uh, to enter into a fuller experience of sonship is a profounder thing than that. And it is the gospel which brings us into that sonship. And, uh, and it is so, in actually, it doesn't really matter whether Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn is Prime Minister because they are not, salvation does not lie with them. Salvation doesn't lie with politics, it doesn't lie with economics or psychology, it's, it lies with Jesus Christ. Yes. And uh, we, must, we must know that. But nevertheless, political action is important, as we've been reminded. These things are important. And, uh, but so, so often, politicians don't mention the most important things like family breakup and loneliness and these issues, and instead we get caught up with things that seem to me to be somewhat secondary. But as we, I want, as we continue this morning, I want us to make a prayer together taken from Psalm 139. It's going to come up on the screen that, that the Holy Spirit would be speaking to us today because he wants to bring us a revelation of our sonship. Maybe you don't know Christ yet, in which case I want you to know there's something for you to enter into. But I know many of you, because I've known you, and looking out, you are sons and daughters of God. And I want us all, including myself, to enter more fully into sonship and daughtership of the Father God. So we pray together in these words. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Amen. 
Now, a couple of well, months ago or so, I used a diagram, which I can put up again today, which is based on noticing those moments when God captures our attention, those kairos moments. It's based on Mark 1.15, where Jesus says, the time has come. It uses a Greek word, not the Greek word for minutes and seconds, but the opportune time. The opportune time has come. And I find God gets my attention in various ways. And then we think about how we can repent and, ref- and believe in that situation. To repent means to change your way of thinking, to change what you think. We need to change the way we think about who we are in order to enter more fully into our sonship. And we need to believe more fully in what God has done. And just by way, before we get into verse 31, which is where I'd really like to teach, I want to um, mention something that's important which I think can be misunderstood with even with some of the songs we sing, which is this, that the, the gospel challenges a myth common in our world, and that myth is that violence is needed to bring salvation. Right? The gospel challenges a myth. You'll find it in movies, in box sets, you watch 24, Game of Thrones, the Taken film series, Mission Impossible, James Bond, the, you know, the Bourne films. All these, most dramas will in a sense sell a, a, a message that ultimately even the good guys must use violence to bring salvation. And we can think that's even true of God. And let's be clear, God is strong enough to destroy everything. That is true. But the way he won his victory over sin and shame and Satan was not with strength, but by making himself vulnerable. The Father sent his Son and gave him up for us all. Right? And so in God's, C.S. Lewis says there's this deeper magic at work in the universe and that God knew the deeper magic. And we need to be people who know that deeper magic because if we are not careful, we behave like orphans on the basis that violence is what's needed to bring salvation. No, it is not. Now, I'm glad, for example, that the police officers last night took down those three murderers and terrorists. You're glad about that too. We're glad about that. But I, I've observed this from my studies of history, and I've been alive quite a long time as well, that violence can win a battle, violence can even win a war, but it doesn't usually win the peace. And what God has done is a superior wisdom. His wisdom is greater than our wisdom. It looks like the world says, God's wisdom, that's foolishness. But it's not foolishness. It is wisdom. So um, I think it's important that we remember that. And I want to make a comment to actually to do with a change of policy that the Conservatives have announced because the Defence Secretary on the 24th of April on BBC Radio 4 said, we have made it very clear that you can't rule out the use of nuclear weapons as a first strike. And I want to say that is a complete change of nuclear policy from all the time that nuclear weapons have existed. Western countries have always taken the position that there's this mutually assured destruction policy. So if you strike us, we will retaliate. And the belief has been that that will d- deter anyone from using nuclear weapons against us. And I, one might have opinions about that, but I think some, many Christians can probably accept that as a doctrine. But the idea that we would launch nuclear weapons first is, I think, immoral, and I also think it's dangerous, and I think it's entirely wrong. Now, I um, don't want to 
talk about how you should vote or anything like that. That's not my place to say. You must decide that. But I think that is a very major departure from all previous practice, and I think it's very dangerous and wrong. But we'll move along from that. Um, so I want to get to verse 31 of Romans chapter 8. And... Um, um, <clears throat> And I've made those comments because Christians have thought deeply about what a just war, when war can be just and when it's immoral, and that what they have decided is there must be proportionality in the action, and obviously things like the only combatants should be attacked, not non-combatants, and various things like that. And that's why I would say as a Christian, I find that immoral. So reading from verse 31 to 39, as we get to the end of this chapter where Paul has talked about us being sons and daughters of God, he then comes to a a passage which I'm sure many of you will have loved when you've read it. It will be familiar to all of you from verse 31 when we read it. We're going to take it section by section because I believe as we go through this section, Paul actually summarizes some of the ways that orphan thinking can afflict us and he's basically saying hey you don't need to think like that anymore you can be free from that and so he says what then should we say in response to these things all the things i've talked about in romans 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 what what can we say and he says he starts with this one well if god is for us who can be against us if, if god is for us who can be against us and Uh, You know, I don't know about you, but there's been times, there are times in my life when a lot of things seem to be against me, like, for example, in this matter I spoke about at the beginning that's not on the recording, and you can feel like the world's against you. Do you ever have that kind of thinking? My neighbours were having an extension, and um, it started to be a lot bigger than the plans they'd put into the council, and I I started to get a bit of a, you know, bit of fight in me. Do you you know that kind of thing can start to happen? This is an us and them. Uh, there's, a, there's something about us can get quickly into this place. And um, remember when Duncan was sharing about how God has worked in his life, he talked about how his, he was abandoned as a child by his father, and this led to a, what he called hypervigilance, a sense that you're looking for danger all the time. You have this heightened, um, you know, what's the chemical goes around in you, um, Adrenaline, that's right. Too much adrenaline all the time. So your heart's going faster a lot of the time because you're hypervigilant. And sometimes stuff happens. Maybe you were raped. Maybe you were in a car crash. Uh, Maybe some other experience. And the result can be that actually we start to stay home more. We become... Uh, we get a false idea of real dangers because something very unusual happened to us. It's happened for some of the kids in Manchester after that terrible bombing there that they then concluded that um, you know, some of the kids were very reluctant, some who were then offered free, free tickets to go tonight, isn't it, to the, um, the charity concerts with Ariana Grande again and a whole host of others that they were were not sure they would want to go because now they're hypervigilant because something terrible has happened. And now we should actually recognise those things are still very, very unlikely to happen. Yes? They're very, very unlikely to happen. But it's understandable how these things can create that hypervigilance. So, um, and when we're hypervigilant, we become much more wary, we become much more of a hiding person, we don't disclose ourselves so freely, and actually it becomes much harder to uh, make relationships with other people. We need an encounter with 
feet with God as Father and to know he's adopted so we can enter into being into his forever family and be confident about that. And then, and then we start to change our thinking, right? And remember in Romans 8, 28, just a couple of verses before, Paul had said this, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So whatever bad things happen to us, we have faith that God is working for our good. And, and that takes a step, doesn't it? Because when all this rubbish was happening in that particular instance in the last two and a half years for me, and it's by no means the only rubbish that's happened in my life, you know, I'm sure your life as well, there's a list of sort of bad things that occur. You, you, you don't think, oh, I can't see any good in this at all. And sometimes it's very hard to see any good. But somehow we trust God. We look through those things and say, well, God is working good through this. He can bring resurrection out of death. He can bring good out of evil. This is what our God specializes in. And he showed it on the cross. And so we can read this again. If God is for us, who can be against us? This is not to say that people aren't for us. The real experience of life is that sometimes people really are against us. But in comparison with having God for you, it doesn't really matter if anybody is against you. It really doesn't matter matter although it can be very painful along the way and I think alongside hypervigilance you can actually get hypersensitivity um, which is and I've met this in people and I've, some, I've certainly seen it in myself when I'm oversensitive I'm over defensive and people who say uh, you, you know they you, you just meet them you have a conversation and then later on you find out they don't want to talk to you anymore because of what you said in that conversation in Guildford Street in Chertsey and you think I, I just was having an ordinary conversation but sometimes people maybe you've been in that place where people's ordinary conversation upsets you and, and you get take umbrage about something do you know that's that's the orphan spirit at work in you it's making you incredibly oversensitive because you don't feel like you belong anywhere. And so your rejection shows. It's like, you know, when you're wearing a dress, ladies, and the petticoat shows underneath. And um, I expect it's fashionable to have it showing, is it? I don't know. It has been, I'm sure, at some point in history. But, um, it, it, you know, it's like um, there are times when our rejection's showing. We're not aware that actually our orphan spirit is being revealed at that time. It's a kairos moment when we can actually spot, wow, you know, why did I get so upset when that person said that? That's, that's, we need to be asking, our, having that little discussion with ourselves. Maybe ask a good friend, you know, I got really upset about that. And, and help, them to ch- help them so we can change our thinking and come free of these things. Because so, it's so associated with a spirit of rejection. I mean, recently one of our members, um, she shared on Facebook about someone who'd been demanding her friendship and threatening to commit suicide unless the person showed their friendship. That's terribly manipulative, and that shows the kind of orphan spirit. Now, we want to help the orphan spirit, but you don't help it by enabling it. And so that's so important. And, th- and then we go to the next verse, verse 32. Read that. It's on the overhead. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, we get Jesus, along with him, graciously give us all things? Isn't that amazing? So, but, but the orphan spirit is a poverty spirit. It has a fear of poverty. And, uh, you know, I've known people who, when they died, were... Found, you, it's quite simple things. I know in one case, a potato peeler. It was a new potato peeler in the drawer in the kitchen. 
but it was like still in its wrapper and, and next to it in use was a potato peeler so worn out it really should have been thrown away. And these people, had, they already had a new one to replace it. But, but we can have that kind of poverty spirit. Now, I know we should, it's good to make things last. I think that's a good thing. But there's a point where actually it's a kind of fear of poverty. The fear of uh, a completely irrational fear of poverty that can settle upon people. And um, so you get that actually in the story. We've already had reference to Luke 15 and the par- parable of the lost coin and the lost um, sheep and also of the lost son. Do you remember that in Luke 15? But in that story Jesus told, it was one of his made-up stories, but of course they're filled with truth, although they're made up. There was an elder brother in the story, the younger brother, who in a sense says, I want to be an orphan. Is anyone else cold with the AC on? Can we just take the AC off? I don't think it's needed unless, of course, is anybody hot and needs the AC on? Because we have to think about our everyone's you see you can put a sweater on if you're cold I suppose (laughs) anyway um, you just press the big grey button and it turns it off does he know how (laughs) so you remember this older brother that the younger brother had said in a sense I don't I wish you were dead dad I want your money right terribly dishonorable thing to do so in a sense he chooses to be an orphan he leaves his father and his older brother takes his inheritance I mean why the father agreed to that I've no idea and went (laughs) off right but when he gets back they kill the fattened calf and the older brother who'd stayed home the whole time and he says here he became angry he wouldn't go into the party his father went out pleaded with him but he answered his father look all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends but when this son of yours not my brother who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home you kill the fattened calf for him he's just so mad but he what we find is he's actually behaving like an orphan too. The younger brother chose to be an orphan. The older brother stayed home but also chose to be an orphan. And you see it in the father's reply. My son, the father said, you're always with me. You had me, you had your dad. Didn't, w- weren't you being my son? And everything I have is yours. You had it all. He was there thinking he's so poor and actually he had it all, all along. And this is what we can be like when we live as orphans. Orphans are convinced they're poor no matter what the circumstances. And we need God's help in that. So this this is what this verse is. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Money is easy for God. These things are easy. We think these things are so hard. They're easy for God. They really are. And then... Verses 33 to 34 on the next slide. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He's praying for us. I think this speaks to us about the fear of disapproval or approval addiction, which is a common thing, I think, with orphans. Just before my father died, he was in hospital for about a month, and towards the end, 
we were asked, my stepmother and I, about his um, support because they said there's nothing more we can really do and we want to recommend withdrawing some of the treatment and just keeping him comfortable. And uh, so he was quite out of it, really, a lot, nearly all the time. But amazingly, one day when I went in, he, he had all the treatment was withdrawn, yet he was sitting up in bed reading the paper. And he was all there, right? And, and I was able to talk with him and, and, and say, um, you know, I would normally, I ventured, I felt I needed to take the step and say to him, look, normally I would pray for people when I visit them in hospital, would that be okay? And as I was there, I felt inspired, I should pray the Lord's Prayer, then the traditional version, for, you know, the prayer book, authorised version. And, um, and so I prayed, you know, our Father who art in heaven, I was just about to pray the next phrase, and he prayed back, our Father who art in heaven. And I, I, was, I was really touched. I felt this is really powerful. And I kept... So then I took a... I paused between each phrase and he prayed them back. And I, I trust God that he was doing some transaction with God because he told me... We'd had a little conversation in which he said he didn't know if he could have any hope. And I said, oh, I believe there is hope in Christ. And, and then proposed this prayer. So I was very grateful that God just gave him that alert time, Right. And I, 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 you know, I just it felt like an answer to prayer, and um, it was very, very good. And but after he died, uh, as I have mentioned in recent weeks, this before, but I, I, obviously I'm a bit sad about that when he died. Um, but I was out trying to analyse what it was I was sad about, and I realised that my biggest sadness was that I'd been waiting all my life for him to approve me. Right, um, because he just he went to boarding school, so in effect he was like an orphan in his childhood, really, from a young lad, you know, in boarding school. So my, his parents worked abroad, so he just went out for the summer holidays to where they were working, and apart from that, the rest of the year was like in boarding school or with a maiden aunt in Worthing, I think it was. And um, I think he was an orphan, really. And uh, so he couldn't, it's not his fault exactly, because he couldn't offer what I hoped would get, you, you know. So, yes, you know, if you pass an exam, you were told, well done, or something like that. So there were those kind of things. But I guess what I'd done in my adult life was never really approved. I never got any identifiable approval. And, you know, we can, the orphan spirit can be really in, enslaved, actually, to the need to approval the need to be approved we, we, we feel you know a lot of us are locked up we can never come and stand at the front because we are desperate whether we are not we are approved we are unable to do so many things we do walk around the street we're all huddled over or whatever and, uh, but actually sometimes we're, we're walking down the street and our body language is good but in our spirit we're like this because we're just not sure that we pass muster. We want to know, are we acceptable? Are we beautiful? Are we loved? Are we liked? And the gospel tells us, yes. We are, yes. Right? Yes. We are loved. We are liked. We are beautiful in his eyes. Yes. Because he makes us beautiful. Right? The old gospel song, I remember when I was a new Christian, something beautiful, something good. All my confusion he understood. 
All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. But he made something beautiful out of my life. That's what God does. And so we're beautiful in his eyes. We're accepted. And, and yet we can be in constant need of reassurance. Did I do okay? Was it all right? Um, the trouble is, even when we get those assurances from other people, and they tell us, oh yes, that was great. Do you know what? I know this to be the truth because I've had this experience and I do have it. That later that day, I'm doubting again about the next thing. Will I, am I good enough now? Is it, I, it was okay this morning. That puts me under more pressure for this afternoon. Right? Some of you will be able to identify with that. And, you know, I love that Matt Redman song. It's on the overhead, Elspeth. I have heard so many songs. Listen to a thousand tongues. There's so many voices out there. And we crave for someone to tell us, you are okay. You are acceptable. You did good. We want somebody who has the authority to declare over us, yeah, you are approved, you've done good. Who's going to do that? We had all these voices, all these songs telling us these different things. But actually there's only one voice that counts. Right? There is one that sounds above them all, the Father's song, the Father's love. You sung it over me and for eternity it's written on my heart. Who has the authority to actually finally declare you are justified, right? You are received in right standing. You are accepted forever. You, have, you are welcomed in God's house. You will never be turned out. Who has that authority? It is Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. Heaven's perfect melody, the next slide. The creator's symphony. You're singing over me, the father's song. Heaven's perfect mystery. The king of love has sent for me. And now you're singing over me, the father's song. So we'll skip the next slide, Elspeth, and just read this verse 33 to 34 again. Who will bring any charge against those God has chosen? It is God who justifies. He says, you are accepted, you're beautiful, you're good, and I love you. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Of course, there are voices that condemn. But besides that voice, these other voices do not matter. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God. And what's he doing? He's interceding for you. He's speaking up for you. When the accuser accuses, Christ himself is speaking up for you, saying, Father, I died for this one. I died for this one. If there is anything to bring to his or her account, put it on me. It's been put on me. Isn't that wonderful? And then this separation, verse 35 to 39. Um, um, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? See, orphans are very anxious about being separated. There can be a lot of separation pain. You know, people who, um, when they're going to part from people they love, are virtually reduced to tears. There's a separation pain taking place. It can happen. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it's written right? the scripture is very honest for your sake we face death all day long we are considered a sheep to be slaughtered yes there's a lot of difficulties in this world there is the garbage there really is the bible doesn't pretend the garbage away it doesn't tell you to close your eyes and say there is no garbage there is no garbage no it says face it there is garbage 
But it says, despite all that garbage, you can't be separated from the love of God. No, he says, verse 37, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's enter into it, dear friends. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now you're going to say, say to me, ah, wait a minute, there was quite a long list there, but I did not see Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts could separate me from the love of God. Friends, it says, verse 39, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. Brussels sprouts is in there. Right? Brussels sprouts is in there. Okay? Terrorists are in there. Anybody you want is in there. And then this is, this is the real clincher. Though. This is what I've had people say to me. Oh, but I'm not in there. I could separate myself from the love of Christ. Well, I know there are some Christians who believe that but I'm not one of them. Because as far as I'm concerned, that start, verse 35, it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is nobody. And the who includes any of us, doesn't it? So the who includes me. And what's more, it says, nor anything else in all creation. Now, unless you are not a created being, this includes you as well. Okay? So you can't separate yourself from the love of God either. And I believe God's bare promise because in John 6, Jesus himself said this, verse 37, with this we'll finish. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. That's God the Father. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. You will never be separated. Verse 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Why don't you stand now? Why don't you raise up and stand up? The band might come up, but... uh, I want us to pray for the spirit of sonship to fall on us this Pentecost day.